You know what song this is, don't you? If you're a real Paul Simon fan, you knew the song. You can call me Al. It's honestly the only Paul Simon song I do not like. Yet, my buddy Mitch once saw me at a Paul Simon concert and later told me I couldn't get your attention to say hello because you and your wife were dancing too hard to You Can Call Me Al and you were scream singing that song so loud I could not get your attention. That image is stained into my brain of how hard I was dancing at How lame am I? Hey, really? Where did my coolness escape to? Where a friend can't get my attention because I'm dancing too hard at You Can Call Me Al? What kind of mood was I in? I mean, I understand being in a joyful mood. That's good. That's healthy. But when you're dancing too hard to You Can Call Me Al, eh, maybe take it down a notch. Maybe pump the brakes a little bit. But a couple weeks ago, I redeemed myself. I found my coolness once again. Now let me explain. On a school night, I alone drove to San Francisco to go to a comedy club alone. Yeah. I mean, I called a friend on the way to meet me, but still, I had an impulsive idea to just go to a comedy club on a Thursday night alone. And I annoyed my wife with my over-contemplation of the idea. Should I? I don't know. I'll be tired the next day. I'm not sure I should do this. Might be a long drive. It's a half hour to San Francisco. And I go, it might be a long drive? Like I've never been to San Francisco? A couple years ago, I was watching a documentary on Amazon Prime called Inside Jokes. And they follow open mic comedians all the way to the Just for Laughs Festival in Montreal. And most of the comics aren't funny. But there was one guy who was so funny. And I hereby declare he's the next big name in comedy. In the next five years, you'll know the name Simon Gibson. Write it down. Nope, you don't have a pen with you? Okay, that's fine. Then forget about it. But Simon Gibson was so funny. This chubby comic from Portland had me dying with laughter. And it was like a documentary series. And every episode, he would get funnier and funnier and funnier. And after that, I never heard anything about him. It was just a documentary series. And I said, all right, if he ever comes to town, I'm going to see him. And for some reason, I constantly Google which comedians are coming to town, even though I rarely go to comedy clubs anymore. And I saw Simon Gibson. He's coming to the punchline on a Thursday night during SF Sketchfest. And I said, fuck it. Grabbed my keys, grabbed my wallet, put on a nice shirt, and headed into San Francisco. Called my friend Isaac on the way, and he honestly said, okay, what kind of friend says yes to a plan at this age without any notice, without any chance to prepare? He just said, okay, how weird is that? If somebody was on their way to a show and called me last minute on a Thursday night and said, hey, Josh, do you want to go? No, no, of course not. I'm in sweats. But I planned this. Isaac met me. There were three comics on stage. The other two, perhaps the worst I've ever seen. There was this one Korean lesbian, and that was her whole act. Hey, folks, I'm Korean, and I'm a lesbian. Look at me. Not funny at all. Brutally unfunny from the get-go. No material. Just trying to be so self-deprecating. As a Korean lesbian, here's what I have to deal with every day. How about some material? How about some jokes? Hey, folks, don't I look like a boy? A Korean boy? I was like, oh, boy, get her off the stage. 
I was squirming, regretting the decision. And then Simon comes on and he delivers. I did have a laugh attack. The type of laugh where you grab your face because you're worried. You're worried. You feel like your face is melting one of those laughs. Needed it. Medicine. Thank you, Simon. If he ever comes to your town, check him out, check him out, check him out. All right. Speaking of comedians, I heard Sarah Silverman on with Conan O'Brien. Conan O'Brien's podcast is pretty good. It's like a B plus. There's some things about it that I'm not totally feeling, but Conan O'Brien needs a friend. It always gets the A-list guests. So he had Sarah Silverman on, and she did something that I've heard a lot of females do on his show and other shows. And she said halfway through the interview, you know, Conan, a while ago, when I was young and you were young, I would have hooked up with you. And you could just hear Conan during the interview, like, stunned. What? And she's like, yeah, there was one night I was single. I was going to be on your show. I told my friend, don't wait up. I'm going to make out with Conan O'Brien. And he was engaged. She didn't know that, but he had found his wife. And as he was greeting her in the green room to say hello, she was flirting. And then he shared the news that he was engaged and she felt like an idiot. But sharing that story with him, what's the point? There have been a couple other comics, females, that have said that to Conan. You know, I find you to be so sexy. And before I was married, I would have hooked up with you. And there's that classic story on Jimmy Fallon where Nicole Kidman comes on his show and says, you remember I once came up to your apartment? I was trying to hook up with you. All right, what is the point of telling guys this? Because Conan's whole thing is, look at me. I'm an unattractive goofball. I'm an undesirable, big, tall redhead. And throughout his life, he probably made a lot of girls laugh, but watched them go home with the cool guys. I made a lot of girls laugh, and then at the end of the night, they go home with the cool, boring guys. So I almost occupy the girls with the jokes, and then goodbye. They go home with the cool guys, the cool, boring guys. Same with Jimmy Fallon. He looks stunned like, what? I could have had Nicole Kidman. And I think there's something about it that I hate. Hey, ladies, if you want to tell funny guys who are no longer single, who are married, that you would have hooked up with them, it's not a great conversation starter. Nobody likes hearing that. Nobody. And it works both ways. I would never go up to a married woman and say, you know what? Back in the day, I really would have hooked up with you. See, that sounds sleazy. That sounds creepy. But I think girls figure, at least Sarah Silverman or maybe Nicole Kidman, figured it was endearing. Like they were giving a compliment to Conan. He couldn't handle it. He didn't know how to get the interview back on track. He was like, ah, blah, 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 blah. What, what, what did I do? What did I say? How did we not? What, what, I could have done what? Clearly, he would have loved to hook up with Sarah Silverman. Clearly, Jimmy Fallon would have loved to hook up with Nicole Kidman. But young, insecure comics? They're not exactly adept at closing the deal. Who knew? Conan was a sex symbol. I think most people like to tell him that now. Not back then. Not back then. But now. All right. As my addiction to stand-up comics continues to get uglier... I just finished Patton Oswalt's book, Silver Screen Fiend, which is good. Highly recommend it. Half memoir, half movie review of his addiction to films. And he's now a dad. He tells a lot of heartwarming stories about his daughter. But one of the stories he told, and this is actually one of his bits on stage that stayed with me. And it becomes even more true now that I see my little girl grow up. Patton Oswalt said he was once at a little girl's birthday party with his daughter. And she was about three, maybe four years old. And there was a part of the party where all the little kids were dancing. All the little kids were dancing. And he noticed that his little girl danced for about 10 seconds and then went 
over to the wall, just walked over to the wall and leaned on it and just started breathing heavily. And he was confused. He's like, why is it that my daughter only dances for a little bit and then likes to walk over to the wall, put her hand against the wall, lean and just start breathing doubled over. I think you know where this is going. He realized, oh, she's imitating daddy when daddy taught her how to dance. But daddy is so fat and out of shape that any sort of dancing or physical exercise period that lasts more than 15 seconds immediately needs a solid break. And to picture that, I mean, he made it funny, but really, isn't that cute that that's his little girl's version of dancing? And now I see it. I do. They really do imitate us. They emulate us. That's why we can't swear in front of them. My wife did the other night. I'll just expose her. My wife said shit. Just in the stream of, I think she had a new mermaid toy and it broke. And my wife's like, shit, she couldn't fix it. And Myla, my girl just said, ah, shit. And we said, oops, scratch that from the record. I like to call all of her stuffed animals Gary. The little bear, the little duck, the little moose, the little rabbit. I call them all. That's Gary. Hey, Gary. And she starts to do it too. I love it. Definitely makes you realize there's some pressure on us to guide them down the right path. Not to get too deep with it, but that's probably the number one thing the world needs. Good parenting. I hereby stand by that. Good parenting. Good politicians? Sure. Good doctors? Yeah. Good education? Good teachers? Yeah, why not? But good parenting? There it is. If you can rely on all parents throughout the world to do their part, at least for the first five years, those important, formidable, impressionable years, think about how much better the world would be. And that is what brings me to Joker. I finally saw Joker. And before we even watched the movie, this is the night before the Oscars, my wife had to coach me because she knows how sensitive I am to violent, heavy movies. So she said, Josh, this is fiction, and I want you to be able to compartmentalize this movie. When we go to sleep tonight, I don't want you thinking of a clown murdering people on the streets of Gotham City. And she knows me so well. It's interesting when somebody knows you, perhaps, perhaps better than you know yourself. Because I was like, yeah, I got it. I'll compartmentalize the movie. We'll watch Joker with Joaquin Phoenix. And then I'll be fine. Deep down, of course, I knew I wouldn't be fine. I don't watch movies like that. But I heard everything about, oh, Joaquin Phoenix, my God. God, did he dominate the screen with this performance. And I like good acting. And I wanted to be informed when watching the Oscars of what all the hype was about. So we watched it. And as the credits are rolling, we didn't really communicate that much during the movie. But as the credits are rolling, we looked at each other and I just said, I hated it. And she was surprised. She's like, really? I liked it. It was well done. It was creative. Clearly, we agreed. Joaquin Phoenix, his performance was great. Dynamite. As good as it gets, that was like a lock for him to win Best Actor at the Academy Awards. But I tried to articulate why I didn't love it, and I sounded like an old fuddy-duddy who was acting like gun violence would perpetuate real gun violence in society. So watching The Joker, fictional character, Batman-themed movie. I don't want to call it a Batman movie because this wasn't really about superheroes. This was about mental health. This was about the lack of resources for a guy from a dysfunctional, broken home, didn't have the parenting, didn't have the support, but you don't want to feel bad for him either. Arthur Fleck, if I could give you a quick review on this movie, spoiler alerts, of course, but you just see it all go wrong. feels a little forced. Everything goes wrong. No more meds, no more therapy, no more love. Society gives up on him. He gets fired at his job. Like everything bad happens to him. 
And then Bruce Wayne, you realize he comes from an affluent background, his nemesis, Batman, good parenting. So was this a good parenting versus bad parenting type of movie? Maybe. I don't know. There's so much to analyze. This is one of those movies that you do want to talk about afterwards, but you're not really going to discuss superheroes. You're going to discuss the motifs and what the point was. At first, I was like, there's no point. This was just frivolous gun violence, bunch of shootings in a city that identifies with destruction and evil. And my wife was like, well, I fully disagree. It was a good old fashioned movie debate. And she has a way higher movie IQ. And then the next morning, this has never happened to me with a movie. The next morning I woke up after a terrible night's sleep, dreaming of the Joker killing me. And I woke up and I said, actually, I get it. I get it. Todd Phillips, you know, the way this movie is done is to wake us up to bad people in society. The old nature versus nurture debate. And this was really about the nurture side. We have bad people in movies. We have villains and bad guys in all of our movies. And in real life, we have villains and bad guys. And a lot of the time, we just write them off as they're bad. Hey, that's a bad guy in that movie. Or you read the news and you read about an ugly crime and you go, that's a bad guy. I think this movie was intending to show us you're not really born that way. It's a lot of the misfortune of your upbringing or your background or a lot of setbacks that'll bring you to that. Does it make it excusable? No. But it was just uh, analysis, a full focus examining what went wrong for the Joker to make him this way. I guess. I don't know. Somebody could be listening to me right now and say, "Mm -mm, you did not. uh, No, no, no. You didn't get it. Uh, The movie was clearly pedantic and relied upon a delicate structure of peripheral characters to, you know, I love a good old fashioned, overly condescending movie debate. At the high school I work at, my journalism newsroom, we share a room with the film students. And I love the film teacher. Good guy. But when he discusses movies, it's at such a high level of understanding, like the lighting and the choices the directors and actors made. And when I watch a movie, I don't have that eye. I don't have that expert eye. So it doesn't invalidate my opinions. But when we talk about movies, like I told him, the Irishman didn't do it for me. And he was like, oh, you must have missed this. And did you notice this? And I'm like, no, no, not really. But I like it. I like disagreeing with people about movies and then understanding why we disagree so wholeheartedly. And it's more fun to rip a movie apart. Like if you think about in your life, what are the movies that you had to turn off or almost walked out of the theater or did walk out of the theater? Then ask yourself why. Find somebody that loved that movie. It's a great discussion. It's a great conversation. I want to find somebody right now who says my favorite Paul Simon song is You Can Call Me Out. I was slam dancing to that song. Mitch could not get my attention. And by the way, how about those Academy Awards speeches? Those are the worst. I love that they all act surprised and humble when really they've been spending weeks in the mirror rehearsing. These are totally written speeches, yet they go to the podium and they act like they're searching for the right word. Like Walking Phoenix with his hand over his mouth, acting like he was uh, in the stream of consciousness, deciding what to say and using that platform to discuss his views on animal rights and who knows, climate change. He's so weird in a good way, though. Like him taking himself so seriously is so entertaining. And then Renee Zellweger, she wins for playing Judy Garland. Her speech was acting. She kept going, um, uh, those are not real, uh, and ums. That's well rehearsed. She just won an award for being the best actress. You think she's going to the podium without a plan? No. 
It was entirely scripted. Joke's on us. If you have nothing to do in the near future, just go watch Renee Zellweger's acceptance speech for Best Actress. It's a hell of a performance. If you think for one moment that any of it is off the cuff, you're crazy. She had the beats planned out. She did the old, like, what's the word? Ingenuity. And what, what do I want to say right now? She, she, you know, the old, I'm struggling to get the right word. And then, boom, I have the right word. Wow, how did that happen? You know, her face, her face is her face, but she also looked like she was struggling to find the most powerful statement. And then, boom, she found the most powerful statement. Boom, are, aren't you also honored that I'm saying these words to you this evening? I sound like Jerry Seinfeld, so cynical. But actors take themselves very seriously for memorizing lines, then delivering lines. Whereas Amy Poehler, she said it's the most embarrassing thing you could do. Acting, the idea of acting, an adult acting in front of cameras and just a full production staff is the most embarrassing shit you could do. That makes sense to me. Hey, go do a love scene. Go ahead. Get in the mood. Get all aroused. Show affection to this other professional actor. Really? In front of everyone? Yeah, go do it. It's embarrassing. You know what else is embarrassing? When I watch the show Meat Eaters on Netflix, there's nothing more emasculating than me watching Meat Eaters. It's this guy, Steve Rinella. He's a hunter, expert hunter, conservationist, conservationalist, conservationist, conservationalist. What's the word? I don't know. He likes to conserve, but he's also really smart. And then he cooks the game. He cooks the animals. He kills wherever he is. Just creates a barbecue on the side of a river. Or creates a grill, creates a kitchen at a campsite. He's really smart. I don't know why. I could watch him hunt. The show is done really well. Like they show him going down a river in Guyana with these two natives. And, you know, he's using a big fishing pole. And they're just like using string to find catfish. They understand the lay of the land, the topography. They really understand how to live off of the land. And I watch this show and I watch him go pheasant hunting and deer hunting and duck hunting. And I truly feel like they represent the opposite of my makeup. My family? Are you kidding me? Not an outdoorsy family. I have very little recollection of even hiking. Definitely no fishing. We never went fishing. I don't think I'm related to anybody that's hunted. I don't think the Rosenbergs, these East Coast Jews, pretty sure not a lot of pheasant hunting going on throughout my lineage if you look down my family tree not a lot of guys skinning deer to get to the venison meat and i just realized wow there's a lot of americans like this or there's a lot of humans like this who are just comfortable picking up a gun picking up a bow and arrow going out killing something and i don't have a problem with that i can't be that hypocritical i eat burgers i eat chicken i eat turkey i eat hot dogs oh yeah i probably shouldn't but i eat all this stuff i eat fish so for me to watch a hunting show and have any sort of judgment would be an ugly contradiction to my diet. But it's fascinating how comfortable some people are. This guy is totally comfortable shooting an elk, then walking up to that dead carcass, ripping off the skin, ripping out the bones, taking the meat, seasoning it, putting it on a grill, and then on a plate. And then by that point, I go, mmm, yum. Well, it's good. But the first 20 minutes I just survived sweating through i was like i could never i could never i just had a buddy jason it's his birthday today happy 41st sorry to drop your age but he went hunting he learned all about it and a part of me kind of wants to sample it like i would try it once you should try a lot of things once who knows maybe i'm the best 
Maybe it turns out I'm a sharpshooter. But how rewarding would that bite be? They were catching catfish. These catfish looked like they were the size of blue whales. Just putting them in their boat. Gutting them, skinning them, gilling them, slicing them, pureeing them, dicing them. Cracking them over the head. And sleeping on the side of the river. Not scared of stinks, not scared of spiders. The exact opposite of who I am. See, I like nature. I like it. But I like like a view of it. Like I'd, I'd like a coastal hotel room. But when you're in nature, when you're in it, not in it like a day trip, but if you're like backpacking, you're like, I'm just going to be in nature. I'm not comfortable with the idea that a bear might come over. Not all that comfortable, as you could tell the way I've talked about wildlife in the suburbs. Not all that comfortable with all these animals. But I do recommend the show, Meat Eaters. Check out an episode. If you find it to be relatable, then you are not like me in any way. I like outdoorsy people. They're fascinating to me. Some guys that just go rock climbing for hours and hours and hours and hours. That's it? That's your day? That's your life? Free Solo? Wasn't that the documentary that won Best Picture a year ago? That doesn't look fun. But the documentary looked fun. All right, what are the two obvious things people say to me? Or probably say to you as well. Number one is time flies. Man, where does time go, right? And it's true. I go to bed on a Sunday night and I dread it. Oh, here comes another grueling week. Why dread it? It'll just be Friday once again. The cycle goes quick. It goes quick. It goes quick. I don't care what job you have. You probably try to press fast forward mentally to the weekend. And we shouldn't do that, right? We should be present in every moment, even the stressful moments. But we don't. Of course, we try to fast forward our lives to the weekend. And I had somebody tell me five years ago when I got hired as a teacher, and I don't know the logic, but I want to explore it, that teaching this schedule, going period to period, season to season, break to break, it makes life seem like it's going and fast forward. It makes life seem like it's going really fast. That's why this teacher that shared that with me said, you got to do novel things with your time off. Don't just stay home. Don't just spend a bunch of time on the couch watching Netflix, but actually go do things with your time off because it'll make time feel like it's slowing down. And it was and has become the absolute truth. There's something weird that happens with the school year schedule. Sometimes I forget that other professions are just year-round, even though I used to live that way. Now, with the summer break, spring break, winter break, weekend, 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 summer break, spring break, winter break, ski week, weekend, 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 weekend. It is a blur. It's February already. Feels like the school year just started. I mean that, literally. It feels like the school year just started, and now it's February already. So what's happening? I don't understand the logic of why it is. Maybe it's that the school day is structured in these periods and they fly by in the blink of an eye. I don't know what happens. You get into a rhythm. It's such a rhythm. You do a full lesson plan for an hour and then a new group of 30 teens come in and you do it again. Variations? Sure. Little differences? Absolutely. But doing the same thing again and then again. And the discussions are different. The humans are different. But it structures the day to where I arrive, start having coffee, and then go into my hamster cage, run on the wheel for about eight hours, and then last bell. And as I walk to my car, it feels like I've gone through the car wash. feels like I was in a dryer all day. It's not the bad kind of exhaustion, but it is true exhaustion. It's vocal cord exhaustion, slight headache from talking so much. There's really not breaks, like classic breaks, just time to yourself. No, kids always come to you during your breaks, and you got to be approachable. So all that is all good. But I feel like I've entered a phase of life that is just expedited by this profession. That's a scary thought. Or maybe everybody feels that way in every job. And what I'm saying is just 
nonsense. However, the second thing people say is enjoy it while they're young. Parenting. It goes quick. And that I actually disagree with. I don't feel like it's going quick. I don't. I feel like it's the biggest cliche I hear. It goes quick. Enjoy it. It goes quick. Soon she'll be a teen. Soon she'll be bringing boys over. Soon she'll be sneaking out. Soon she'll be filling out those college applications. Oh, really? Soon shut the fuck up. Oh, really? It goes quick. It goes quick. Oh, my God. That's every conversation that you have with people. I mean, on the surface. Not the people close to you, but, you know, just like the tepid small talk conversation about parenting. That's the go-to for everybody. Oof. Goes quick, man. It goes quick. For some reason, it doesn't. She still looks small to me. I don't know. Maybe one day I'll wake up and say, where did all that time go? But I'm pretty present. Maybe it coincides with the fact that I've been meditating throughout her entire life. Be here now, Ram Das. I think I'm pretty present. I haven't had that moment where I wake up and go, where's time gone? Look at this grown woman. No, it's just, she's still little. It's great. I love that. That's the dichotomy. Professionally, makes my life feel like it's going fast, 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 fast. Parenting slows it down. I like that. Maybe this is an advertisement for parenting. So go on and do it now. You heal. All right, I'll end with this. You know what's weird? I used to know who won the World Series every single year. Every single year. And then something happened in the last 10 years where not only do I not know who won the World Series, I probably didn't watch all the games. And how about this? Drum roll, please. I didn't give a shit. Like, ask yourself right now, who won the most recent World Series? The answer is the Washington Nationals. That probably didn't change your mood just now when I revealed that. But back to the film teacher. I was talking sports with him. He's also a sports fan. And we were going back and forth, describing who won all these World Series that we remember throughout the 80s and 90s. And we were just going back and forth. I was able to go from the year of my birth, 1981, through about 94, 95. 81 Dodgers. 82 Cardinals. 83 was the Orioles over the Phillies. 84 Tigers over the Padres. Just going to do this off the top of my head. And I don't know what crease of my brain this is still in. But the Royals won it all in 85. The 86 Mets. The 87 Twins. The 88 Dodgers over the A's. And then I think my first real memory of watching every moment of every pitch was A's sweeping the Giants in the Battle of the Bay 1989. 1990, Reds sweep the A's. 1991, Twins over the Braves. 1992, here come the Blue Jays for two straight years. So 92, 93, Blue Jays. 94, strike. No World Series. Next year, 95, Braves over the Indians. There it is. Braves with all those pitchers finally win one. And then 96, the Yankees start to become that dominant team that I tune out. And that's when it ends for me. It's when it ends. The World Series used to be so special. And then I thought about this. There's an economic rule called the Rule of Diminishing Marginal Utility. Yeah, I'm going to bring this up. It's a law of economics. It says the satisfaction that people derive from anything, items, products, even experiences, it decreases as they consume more of it. So it's called the Law of Diminishing Marginal Utility. And I had to study this. I had to teach it years ago. I taught econ for a semester. And we did an experiment. I made popcorn for 35 kids. And I said, eat a kernel and then evaluate how satisfied you are after each bite of popcorn. So when my wife and I eat popcorn, those first few bites, oh, heavenly. And then at some point after bite number 45, bite number 60, the satisfaction decreases, kind of plummets. Towards the end, I go, I'm good. And my students kind of understood as they just sat there eating popcorn and evaluating how their satisfaction was decreasing and diminishing over time. 
as they consumed more and more and more. I feel like that's sports for me. I mean, that's a lot of things. Just early memories seem so special, so important, like the NBA Finals. I can remember these experiences. The last, actually the Warriors have been good, but Super Bowls, years just fly by. College football championships, college basketball championships, they just fly and they fly and they fly and they fly and they fly. And they don't feel special, but I bet there's a 10-year-old who's memorizing all the current winners of all the champions and league championships, and it's going to be special to them. But when they're 38, the law of diminishing marginal utility, the memories, the items, products just in general have more value when first purchased. So how do you go back and develop beginner's mind? I don't know if it's possible. A lot of people say they like to live vicariously through their little kids, like Play-Doh could be fun again, finger painting could be fun again. It's fun to watch your kid do it, but really those memories reached the pinnacle of as special as they're going to be. So now, yeah, absolutely. Not to sound morbid, but who cares about me anymore? It's all about watching my kid and hopefully kids in the future. That's it. That's where the joy comes from, watching them experience life. Could I attain beginner's mind as my guided guru says on the meditation app? Achieve beginner's mind. Look at nature as if you're looking at it for the first time. I try so hard. And some days I'm good at it. But most days I look at things through the lens of a cynical old 38-year-old. All right. Let's get out of here. Had a bunch of other shit written, but I'm not getting to it. Who cares? Let's say goodbye. That's episode 81. It's in the books. I'll talk to you soon. <laughs>